Welcome to the study of God's Word with pastor and author Ed Taylor, recorded live from Calvary Chapel in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media, visit us online at calvaryaurora.org or download our free app on all platforms. And now, here's Pastor Ed to take us into our study. Amen. Take your Bibles, open them to the book of John, chapter 10, as we continue our series with... And what an appropriate series to be in when it comes to knowing that the shepherd is with us and we are with the shepherd. And he's, in our, he's our encouragement and our help. And as we're learning, the sheep hear the shepherd's voice and we follow him. We stay close to him. Now, one of the greatest difficulties in the believer's life is self-sacrifice. Think about it in your own life. That's not the easiest part of following Jesus. I think one of the greatest barriers to our spiritual growth and effectiveness is our selfishness and our self-thought and our being absorbed with ourselves and everything being centered on ourselves or as we might say, our self-centeredness. It doesn't take long observing our culture to see how narcissism has become infectious And so many are dealing with narcissism today. But it would be too easy just to point the finger at culture and not acknowledge and admit that narcissism has invaded our lives and invaded us to some degree. But it's not a 21st century issue, you know. And to the church in Ephesus, Paul wrote this. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 29, he said, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it. And isn't it true? Time and time again, we're admonished and exhorted to take a good, hard look at ourselves and respond accordingly and spiritually. Romans chapter 12, verse 3 says that to everyone that's among you, not to think of himself more highly than he thought. And in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. It's so easy to be completely engrossed with ourselves, with our own life, with making a name for ourselves, getting ahead. For some get caught up in the corporate ladder, money, fame, attention, prominence, to devote your whole life to an earthly goal, to be worried about yourself, to be panicked about yourself, to be stuck about what the future might hold, to make sure retirement is in order. And all of those perhaps have a place in our lives, but more importantly, God would have us to pour ourselves into God and his kingdom. If you really wanna do something that has eternal impact, be 100% committed to God. That whatever gifts and abilities and talents you have, make sure that they're coming from the hub of a relationship with Jesus. Too often we place ourselves at the hub of our life so that the spokes of our life, like you have a spoke of career and a spoke of family, and though, yeah, maybe I have a spoke of Christianity, but it's all about you. But when you and I were born again, things were flipped upside down. No longer are we sitting on the throne of our lives, but rather we acknowledge that Jesus Christ bought us and purchased purchased us with his own blood. And that now the spokes of our life come out from the hub and the direction of God. And how careful we need to be 
to use our gifts and abilities and talents for him. So when Jesus teaches us, and we're coming into John chapter 10, when Jesus teaches us, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. I want you to consider that from the perspective of a sheep listening to a shepherd. If we're going to follow Jesus in any productive way, we need to hear the call of the shepherd to deny ourselves. To deny ourselves. You know, I think of different pictures of sheep out eating and grazing and they hear the shepherd and many, many of the sheep say, hey, let's go. And then there's a couple left behind go, no, I'm still hungry. And it just disrupts all of the movement of what the shepherd wants to do. He knows what's right for us. He knows where he wants to, he knows where he's gonna make us lie down. He knows where the streams are. He knows when danger is coming. And if we choose to not heed the call of the shepherd by denying ourselves for the sake of following him, then we're gonna cause a lot of chaos and confusion as we'll see in a moment. So pick up with me in John chapter 10 in verse 17 where we left off. Therefore my father loves me because I lay down my life that I might take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. And this command I've received from my Father. These are powerful words. The love of the Father toward the Son is eternal. And the Father knew that if he acted in creation, then he would act in redemption, and that redemption would be the death of his Son. And what it tells us Jesus is saying as the the good shepherd that he willingly and voluntarily laid down his life for the sheep. Because there's a lot of people that say, well, you know, Jesus was just a victim of circumstance. He was not. Many people look to Jesus and call him a martyr. He was not. And in a very real sense, people will look at the death of Jesus and say he was murdered And although from a human perspective that's true, but from an eternal perspective, Jesus voluntarily, mark these words down because it's gonna help you move forward as we continue as a church. He voluntarily, he voluntarily and willingly laid down his life. This was all part of God's plan from the beginning. He wasn't a victim of circumstance. He remained silent before his accusers when he had the power to call down legions of angels to wipe everybody out. He could have wiped the government out, but he submitted to the government. He, he could have wiped out, see, he submitted to Agrippa. He submitted to Herod. He submitted to all of the people that were involved. He submitted to, the, to willingly and voluntarily for the sake of others, for you and for me. Jesus' death was voluntary. And here's a, a word you might hear. I want to define it for you so you can use it too. He died. His Jesus' death was voluntary. Number two, it was vicarious. His death, the vicarious simply means in place of. So Jesus' death was in place of you and me. It was vicarious. That's why when you would hear, we believe in our doctrinal statement in the vicarious blood atonement of Jesus Christ. That's our fancy phrase for saying, we believe Jesus died for our sins in our place. Vicarious. And then thirdly, Jesus' death was victorious. And it came out of a love relationship with the Father. It wasn't out of a relationship, you have to do this, but rather out of a love relationship of a father and son where he willingly laid down his life. And that's what God is calling, as sheep following the shepherd, 
we need to follow voluntarily and willingly, not by being coerced or manipulated or guilt-tripped, but rather we're following him because we've laid down our life before him. And notice he says in verse 18, I lay down my life, but I'm gonna take it again. I'm gonna rise again from the dead. That's the victorious power of the death of Jesus Christ is that he did receive his take it again. He did rise again from the dead. And it says this command at the end of verse 18, I have received from my father. And how did the command come? Through love. We can receive commands because we know that the father loves us. And if he tells us to do something, it's for our good and for his glory. Now notice verse 19. Therefore, there was a division again among the Jews because of these sayings. And many of them said, he is a demon and is mad. Why do you listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who has a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? I want you to notice here a couple of things. Number one, the words of Jesus brought division wherever he came. That's going to happen in your life. And I know you don't like it. I know you don't like people mad at you. I know you don't, don't like to be a, a position of offense in someone's life. But if you choose to obey God in sharing the love of Jesus Christ, people will be divided and they will be offended. The gospel message itself brings offense. Now, of course, we don't want to be the offensive ones because we can deliver it wrong. We can deliver it in a way that's not loving and not caring. We don't want to be the offensive ones, although we do make mistakes from time to time. But even if you deliver it perfectly, wouldn't you agree that Jesus delivered it perfectly? It brought division. And I want you to expect that. I want you to expect that when you share the love of God, not everybody's going to like it. And not everybody's going to like you. Not everybody's going to agree about you. There's going to be some to say, oh, what about this? And what about that? And that's just the way it is. Now, some time passes and note between verse 21 and verse 22, you probably should jot it down because if you didn't, you wouldn't notice that some time passes. So by the time we get to verse 22, we are at the end of the year. And we know that because of the Feast of Dedication. The Feast of Dedication was in Jerusalem in the wintertime, which is, uh, you, know, you commonly know the Feast of Dedication as Hanukkah. Hanukkah is around our Christmas time. So this is down in December where the previous verses happened around October. So some months have passed. And if you read it straight through, you may just kind of think this all happened at once. But some months have passed and it's a new season. Jesus is at another time at the temple and notice what happens. Now it was the feast of dedication in Jerusalem and it was winter. And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch and the Jews surrounded him. Now I have this marked, you might want to mark it. This is a, the word surrounded is an aggressive act. So they go and they're surrounding him and peppering him with questions. And notice, they said, how long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Now up to this point, he has told them plainly multiple times, over and over and over again. And the backdrop, of course, is the last time he told them through the, the healing of this man in chapter nine that was born blind. Listen to his answer. Jesus says, I told you and you don't believe. A second thing in sharing the gospel, just understand that the reason why people aren't saved is because they don't believe. You could tell them and tell them and tell them and tell them, but if the gospel message isn't matched with faith, then a person can't be born again. And so Jesus says, I told you, but you don't believe me. And that's often the barrier when we're sharing with others. 
The barrier is that we told them, but we, we, they don't believe, which gives me another thought uh, to share with you that is very important for you to understand, and that is when you're sharing the gospel, we don't always see the results. We may walk away from, man, another person didn't believe me, person slammed their door on me, don't want, they want to argue with me, and on and on the list goes, and we don't always see the results. Like we're telling, but it's not met with belief. And I would just say, don't be discouraged. Because in sharing the gospel, Paul would put it this way. He would say, some people plant, some people water, but it's God that gives the increase. And so as you're planting the seeds or God might be using you to water the seeds, you may or may not see the fruit of your labors. But here we are, we like immediate results. We wanna see, if I do something, I wanna see the results of it. But with the gospel, you don't always see the results right away. So don't give up on it, don't be discouraged. You don't always see the results. And then he says, notice, the works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But you do not believe because you're not of my sheep. As I said to you, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. So here's that relational part of following Jesus. My sheep, so that's a, a statement of ownership. My sheep, they hear my voice. That's a statement of attentiveness. And then they follow me. That's a statement of obedience and proximity and relationship. It's a beautiful picture, the shepherd and the sheep. It's a beautiful picture to know that we are listening for the shepherd. And so when you follow the shepherd, you belong to him. And when you belong to him, you have a knowledge relationship, like he knows you and you know him and you choose to follow and obey. To follow and obey. So encouraging. That's the work that God has for us. And you know, there's a, an important part of following and sharing that we need to remember before we jump to the rest. And that is, when we're sharing, be careful not to jump in and try to diagnose someone and fix their lives. Jot this down, we won't turn there, but in Daniel chapter nine, verse, or excuse me, Daniel chapter four, verse 19, the verse says that, as Daniel was about ready to share with Nebuchadnezzar the interpretation of the dream, it says he sat there astonished for an hour. In the old King James, that word astonished is translated, he sat there um, silent for an hour. And there was a season of silence. And that season of silence in our lives, it, it, how I translate it into our lives when you're sharing the gospel is how important it is for us to listen carefully to the person that's in front of us. To not be quick to jump to conclusions when we're sharing the gospel or when a person comes to us with a problem. Rarely, 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 and I mean absolutely rarely, is the issue in someone's life that caused them to ask for help the real issue. Like, like for example, some issue comes up and, oh, I need help, and they call, and, and you automatically want to diagnose and fix the behavior. Now, again, the behavior is certainly something that needs to change, but rarely is the behavior the issue. It's just a symptom of a deeper heart issue, or what we would say, the root of the matter, the depth of the issue. And so we need to be careful and quiet, asking the Holy Spirit to give us insight and wisdom 
on what we're dealing with. Not just diagnosing and fixing or, you know, in a way like saying, like saying, uh, take two verses and call me in the morning. That's what you need. Uh, But rather, I, I mean, I'm a firm believer in giving someone the word of God. It changes lives. But in your delivery of it, you've got to be sensitive to what God wants to show you and reveal to you from his word for that person. Jesus is giving them the truth. And he's repeating the same thing that he said last time, giving them the truth. And he says, look, my sheep, you're not my sheep. That's why you don't believe. That's why you don't hear me. That's why you don't, you're not acting on what I say. And notice what the, what the shepherd does now in relationship, verse 28. He says, and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Verse 28 is a, is a verse of safety and security. That, that the shepherd gives eternal life. And he makes it very clear. That life is eternal. Secondly, he defines it. And he says, not only do I give eternal life, but they'll never perish. That's an absolute statement. And not only that, never perish, but neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hands. There's that safety and security with the shepherd. And then verse 29, he gives it even greater. He says, my father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and my father are one. While the false shepherds bring destruction and chaos, while the thief comes except, the thief comes except to kill, steal, and destroy, the good shepherd gives safety and security. And you can rest in him. And notice, he gives it. He gives And so what do we do? We receive that. We don't take it. We receive it. It reminded me of how we do the tithes and offerings here. You know, we don't have people walking with baskets or anything, taking an offering. We rather have, we approach it by saying we receive. You voluntarily and willingly give, and we as a church receive it and use it under the glory of God. So we have offering boxes around. We don't take it. We receive it because you're ready to give. You come to worship, you're ready to give. So we receive it. It's what we, how we respond to the gospel. We don't take it like it's ours. We receive it as a gift and we're grateful for it. And when we receive the gift of salvation, we are secure because of the shepherd, not because of us. And we are safe because of the shepherd, not because of us. And we will not be snatched away, which which kind of implies that there'll be attempts to snatch you away. There'll be temptations. There'll be things. There'll be, they'll, they'll be people and things and, and, that to snatch you away. Even yourself at times would want to walk away and just give up. I quit. It's like, no, nope, not even you will snatch you out of the Father's hands. <laughs> and so what happens? This is such a great verse. Even in all your doubts and concerns, you know, you might even lay down, I don't even know if I'm saved or not. Well, do you hear the shepherd's voice? Yep. Have you followed him? Yep. Well, nobody's going to snatch you out of the Father's hands. Oh, the shepherd tends. Great. And you can, even when you're doubting and concerned, this is one of those places you go to and go, no, I'm saved because of what he has done, not because of what I do. It's so cool. So what do people do with truths like this? They argue, they like to make it one of the most controversial things in all the church. Pastors fight about it. The dominations fight about it. Everybody's got an opinion. Are you secure or are you not secure? Can you lose your salvation and have your salvation? Look, look, Jesus says, you hear his voice. He gives you eternal life. You will never perish. And nobody will snatch you out of his hands. 
That should comfort you and encourage you. Not give you permission to live like the devil because if you live like the devil, maybe you're not saved. And you have to consider whether you're following the shepherd or not. And I like this phrase. I picked it up from my friend Gino Geraci. Uh, and so I made it my own. And he said this, and I like this. I believe in the security of the believer and the insecurity of the make-believer. And so that sense of, yeah, believers can be secure. Because if a person's playing games with God, and they're just playing, dabbling with church and pretending to be a believer, which only they truly know, then, then they have no security, no comfort, no confidence. They're frustrated, they're fearful, they're in anguish, they're filled with anxieties, they're unsure if they're saved one day and not the next. And it makes sense that God would keep us secure. You know how Peter put it? Peter would know because he went through some struggles. You know how Peter put it in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5? He said, you are kept by the power of God. It's not kept by your good works, not kept by your feelings. He says, you could feel like you're not saved and still be saved. You can feel, you can have all kinds of weird feelings, but still be a believer. And you can be a person that thinks, you know what? I was raised that way. I received the Lord, but I want to go try my own thing. We call that backsliding. And only believers backslide. Unbelievers don't backslide. They rebel and they live in total rebellion against God. But only believers backslide. And they do so at their own peril and their own consequences. And ask any prodigal that ever walked away and came back if they regret it. They'll say yes. Because the consequences of a believer sinning against knowledge are actually worse. Because you knew better. And so God just calls you back. Calls you back home. Which leads us to the final part of our time today. If you're taking notes, I want to talk about the difference between a believer and a make-believer. Because you might be asking the question by now, well, how do I know if I'm a believer or not? What are the characteristics do I look for? Especially those of you that just uh, found yourself... Uh, accepting Jesus Christ during this crisis or you're a new believer and you don't know much about the Bible and you don't know much about what to, to know and am I a real believer or not or you're a this is also good for those that have a tendency to doubt or to rely on their feelings more than faith and they you know when you fail and yell at the kids or you know you get mad and a cuss word comes out of your mouth and you're just like oh, I don't even know if I'm saved or not well here are some things to look at that will show you the evidence of a changed life. So there's 10 of them, but there's not, they're not exclusive. And we only have a little bit of time, so I'm gonna go through 10 of them kind of quickly. So number one, what does a believer look like? Number one, a believer has spiritual life. Spiritual life. 1 John 5:11. this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. So there's just a sense of spiritual life. The Bible describes us apart from God as being spiritually blinded, but now being born again, we have spiritual life added to our physical life. Number two, a person that's a believer, a follower of Christ, a disciple, has a new, number two, sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. You have a brand new sensitivity to the third person of God who dwells in you. Jot it down in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3. It says, Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed, and no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So just like when Jesus convicted you of sin when you were born again, 
and you responded, you have that relationship continually now. You have, you, you, are, you, are, you have a sensitivity to things that you never had before because you have spiritual life and now God lives inside of you and you're sensitive to the Holy Spirit. He'll speak through you and to you from his word no matter where you are. Number three, and this is an important one in the time that we're in, a believer has a real desire for fellowship with other believers. You just want to be with other believers. It's not just a family gathering. It's not just getting together to talk about the Broncos or the Rockies. You have a desire to be with people to talk about and enjoy the things of God together. Now, for those of us that got saved later in life, like that was the last thing I ever want. I never wanted to be in church or talk about God ever. And what a stark contrast for the believer that goes, no, I, I want to, what's God doing in your life? What did you learn in your devos today? I want to come together and just sing in a room filled with people. I mean, imagine that. Like, where did that come from? You were born again. You're a new person now. 1 John 1, 3. That which we've heard, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that also you may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. John 15, 4, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. So that desire for fellowship is first with God. The word fellowship just means to share in common. And, and you can only share in common when you're together in some way. And the technology has bridged that gap for us physically. And we may have had a few people over to the house to talk about things of God. But when you get back together as the church, and when you travel, when you travel and you're in another city, you're on vacation, or you're traveling somewhere in another country, what do you, you look for a church. And I've been, to, I've been to places where I didn't know the language, but I went to church. And even though I didn't know the language, and even though I didn't know what they were singing, I was in the room and the Spirit of God was there. And the Spirit of God in fellowship transcends whether we even know each other's language or not, because you've got the language of the Spirit right there in fellowship. And now as a believer, you want to be in fellowship. Number five, four, number four, number four. But one of the marks of the believer is steady obedience. Steady obedience. In John 10, 27, it says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. So we obey God now. Now, I didn't say perfect obedience. I said steady obedience. Nobody has perfect obedience. We all fall short of the glory of God. We all fail. But a steady obedience. Uh, Jesus said, if you love me, right? We're obedient not because we have to, but because of love. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And if you love me, you'll want to know my commandments. You'll listen to me. You'll be in the Word. So you have a steady obedience. There's something different about your life than before you were born again. Number five, another mark of the believer is spiritual assurance. Sometimes it's mistaken for arrogance, but you're not arrogant, you're just assured that God has worked in your life. Somebody might even come, how, how do you know God? So, oh, I believe what he said. Well, what do you mean? wait a minute, what about this? And you're like, you, you have this confidence and assurance. And that's a mark of a believer. First John chapter five, verse 13. These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Assurance. We can be confident that we're going to heaven, 
not because of what we have done, but because of the promise of Jesus. It's his gift. We're secure because of his power. We're going to heaven because of his promises. And when times of doubt and discouragement come, we can rest upon the sure foundation of God's promise to us. Number six, a believer also has spiritual security. As we're seeing here, safety and security. No one snatches us out of his hands. No one. And you can jot it down in Romans chapter 8, verses 37, 38, and 39. This says, no one and nothing can take us away and separate us from the love of God. Jesus says, nobody's going to snatch you out of my hands. Nobody's going to snatch you out of the Father's hands. You, ha- you can rest in the promise of security. He has you. And it's not because, and you go, wait a minute, Ed, what about those that live like the devil? Listen, if you live like the devil, I warn you, examine yourself as you, whether you're in the faith or not. Because a person that loves God will not live for the enemy. And, and if he does live for the enemy, he won't do so with any sense of peace. It will not bring him the kind of peace and joy that he's looking. You know, the thing about sin is usually we're tempted by sin when we're feeling empty, when we're feeling like desolate, and there's, we're just like primed for that right temptation. And then when you take the temptation and you choose to sin, what happens? Sin leaves you, leaves you emptier than when you were before. So you, you kind of like, man, maybe this will make, fill me. Maybe this will make me happy. And what happens, sins make you more unhappy than you were and more empty than you were. And that's because there's that assurance that you have in your life and security that you come back to the shepherd. You hear his voice. That's how it starts. You start listening to his voice and you find yourself following him and obeying him. A couple more. Number seven, a believer loves what God loves. Isn't that neat? You love what God loves. And that love is tied together through 1 Corinthians 13. It's, it's not like, you know, sometimes we'll use the word love as an emphasis on like. So I really love that. And what you mean is you really like it. That's not what we're saying here. When you love what God loves, it's an agape, self-sacrificial love where you are willing to commit yourself to it at the, co- at the, pri- at the personal cost at a high personal cost as you deny yourself. You love what God loves. We have a whole new way of looking at the world. We have the love of God abiding us, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which brings us to number eight. If you love what God loves, then number eight, you're gonna hate what God hates. You're gonna hate what God hates. That love comes with a godly hatred, not of people, but of the destruction of sin. It'll break your heart. Sin will break your heart. It'll upset you. The filth and the perversity of, the, of this world is no longer tolerated in your life. You, you no longer invite it. And, and when you see sin, your heart's broken for the sinner, but you hate the sin. And so you love what God loves, seven. Number eight, you hate what God hates. Number nine, I didn't have a really good way. I have to explain number nine, but the phrase I guess I'd use is God wins. And here's what I mean. When there are spiritual disagreements, like for example, when you're reading the Bible and the Bible says, do this, and you say, I don't want to do that, God always wins. So you could say number nine is a believer surrenders to the will of God. And it's not your will, but it's his will. I think a great picture of that is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he says, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. 
And there are many times when you're reading in the scriptures and the Holy Spirit says, that's for you. And you go, no, that's not for me. That's for my husband. That's for my wife. That's for my friend. And God says, that might be for them, but it's for you. And you just surrender. The, the best word that I like to describe this is that the believer is a yielded person. James chapter 3, verse 17 says this. Wisdom that's from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield. So think of that, voluntary, willing. And the mark of a believer is they're willing to yield to the will of God and not fight it all the time. Our resistance and fighting nature is replaced with one that's willing to yield. And we find ourselves bending more and finding greater flexibility with the will of God. And number 10, another sign of a believer that wasn't there before is that believers long for the soon return of Jesus Christ. Who else would care that Jesus Christ is coming back except believers? And not only do we care, we are excited and almost to a point impatient with the return of Jesus Christ. It says in Psalm 27 verse 8, when you, when you said seek my face, my heart said to you, your face Lord I will seek. Revelation 22:20. he who testifies to these things says, surely I'm coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus. And so you can see how I believe in the security of the believer, but the insecurity of the make-believer. And yet to either person God calls, the shepherd, his voice goes out for us to hear and receive. Even to the Jews here in John chapter 10, he said, I told you, I've been talking to you. My voice has gone out to you. What you lack is belief. Believing in what I say. Believing in what I say. You see, that's the key to spiritual life. The key to spiritual life is faith. That we walk by faith and not by sight, Paul would say. We walk by faith and not by feelings. We walk by faith and not by our opinions and, and our attitudes. And I'm grateful for that because faith will take everything and bring us back down to that place of self-sacrifice, which is the greatest obstacle in our spiritual growth. The greatest obstacle in our spiritual growth is not someone else, it's us. It's me and what God wants to do in my life. So as the worship team comes back up, if you've never received Jesus Christ as your Savior, this is the real, like you've heard, and now it's time to match that with belief. That's really the reason why Jesus came to earth, was to save your soul. He did it willingly, voluntarily, vicariously, with great victory in his resurrection. And today, if you'll turn away from your sins, and you will, and the Bible word for that is repent, and you will confess with your mouth Jesus Christ as the Lord of your life and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, the promise of God is that you will be saved. And so I wanna invite you to follow the shepherd today. I'm not inviting you to follow a church or a pastor. I'm not, I'm not inviting you to follow a man or a woman that's a teacher. On behalf of God, I'm his messenger to invite you to follow him and join us in following Jesus Christ. But, but you can't just do it without, you can't do it outside a relationship, then you'll just be a make-believer. 
be frustrated. And you'll have no eternal security, no eternal life, no eternal hope, because you know more than anyone the fakery that's in your life. But you can deal a death blow to fakery today by repenting of your sins. So you could talk to God like this. You could say, God, I ask you to forgive me of all of my sins. And I believe you sent Jesus Christ to live for me, to die for me, and I believe Jesus rose again from the dead to save my soul. And I want to follow you all the days of my life. Help me, God, to turn away and repent of my sins. And I think someone just needs to pray, help me, God, to be delivered from my addiction. And you know, the Bible says that anyone that calls out on the name of Jesus will not be cast away. And so he welcomes you, that sincere, true, repentant heart. And we're excited for you and we're glad that you made that choice today. If you were here in the room with us, I'd invite you up to the stage. I'd invite you up to the stage so we can hand you a pamphlet that shows you what to do next. You know, the good news is you don't need to know everything to follow God because you'll never know everything. You just need to know about his love and your sin and his blood and his forgiveness. That's it. And God will lead you and guide you over the, over the years to teach you about him. Because that's really what the Bible's all about. It's about him. And you learn about him, you begin to learn about yourself. We put a packet together that I would give to you, the men and women on the prayer team would give to you, but you can't do that. So go to our website, calvaryco.church, scroll all the way to the bottom, there's a how to know God tab. Everything we give away here is available for free on the website. You can print it, you can forward it, you can save it, you can do whatever you want with it, but it's the exact same thing we give away here. Or you can text us and we, you can ask for this information, we'll send you the link. You can tell us that you responded to the gospel or if you have a prayer request, we have a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week prayer line that also is going to stay with us after all this is, is over. And we're going to always receive your prayer requests on this phone number. 720-336-0897. 720-336-0897. That's monitored. It's open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It's monitored usually in the awake hours of the day, but occasionally I'm up late at night and I'm seeing them at three or four in the morning. So you can text at any time. I'll get to see it and pray first, and then I get the privilege of passing it on. It goes to our staff, it goes to the pastor's wives, it goes to the prayer team, uh, it goes to our board of elders. So a lot of people, and, and people that are praying for you. Uh, and that's kind of exciting to know you got people in your corner praying and lifting up those situations that are in your life before the Lord. We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Aurora. For prayer or a copy of this study, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7223. Or visit us online at calvaryaurora.org. Be blessed as you worship Jesus this week.